This week, the Comics Guys Explain Loki, Part 2. Yes, thank you, Ben, uh, and welcome back, everyone. We're back with Part 2 of Loki, where we're going to cover, well, all the little miscellanea that was uh, located in the series. So, let's start at the end, the end of all time, <laughs> with uh, Alioth. Where is he from? Alioth in the comics, uh, visually they got his look just about right. He looks fabulous in the in the show, um, and he is in fact this horrible monster made basically physically made of smoke, etc. But in the comics, he is not, uh, you know, kind of like a henchman of He Who Remains the way he is in the show, right? Like in 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 the show, he is, you know, as they say, the last step, the last guardian before you get to the actual end of time. Um, Alioth in the comics is in fact actually a rival to Kang, a another kind of like time manipulating, time traveling monster um, who has taken over many different timelines, many different alternate timelines and histories and conquered them itself. It's basically an, an enemy to Kang, a rival to Kang. Um, and it first appears in that same Terminatrix, Avengers Terminatrix uh, limited series starting in 1993. Um, over the course of the next few years in the Marvel Universe, um, Kang first defeats it, or, or at least kind of like drives it back to the point where they have a, you know, kind of like a standing Cold War between them. Um, and then when he is in a conflict with Ravana later, uh, he basically manipulates Alioth into being, uh, you know, a, a, a tool for himself without Alioth realizing it. Um, he basically kind of like sets up a situation where he forces Ravana uh, as Terminatrix uh, to go into battle against Alioth. Um, but it's all a thing that Kang has, you know, like set up by manipulating things behind the scenes. Um, he is still out there in the Marvel universe. Um, and he still is apparently, you know, like the ruler of a bunch of timelines, most of which, uh, you know, the Avengers and those guys have never actually gotten to. We've never really seen the details of what his kingdom might look like, but he's, uh, it was a fun choice, I think, to bring him in, in the TV series. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he was very cool. We already talked about it a little bit, but, uh, Throg, um, who's got a fairly like lengthy backstory for such a small character. <laughs> so who's Throg? So when we're scanning down into the uh, underground bunker of the Lokis, we briefly pass a uh, buried version of Mjolnir, uh, and next to it is a jar uh, that contains a weird-looking little frog creature wearing a Thor costume who is like struggling to get out of the jar. And if you listen very closely and very carefully, it's actually Chris Hemsworth's voice, uh, you know, that uh, is, you know, this muted version that we hear from inside the jar. Uh, this is a reference to one of the most beloved of Walt Simonson's storylines uh, during that amazing run of Thor that I was also describing. In February 1986 is the first story. Uh, this is just after uh, the Cert War. And so there are a bunch of Asgardians who are on Earth where they have been fighting uh, demons. Loki and Thor and Odin have all like teamed together to defeat Surtur and basically stop him from destroying uh, the universe, etc. And Loki, uh, who has been seen, had kind of did a bit of a face turn during the course of this run, realizes that, you know, I haven't done anything uh, particularly evil or dickish recently and gets into a fight with Thor and turns him into a frog. Um, Thor is, finds himself basically trapped as a frog uh, on 
Earth on Midgard in Central Park in New York City. Um, and there's a, an entire, basically, two-issue run of the adventures of Thor as a frog, in which he meets several other frogs uh, who are being picked on by a gang of uh, rats, uh, and both of whom, both the, the, the rat gang and the frog gang, uh, in the sewers of New York City are terrified of the alligators in the series, uh, in the sewers, basically, who are like these horrible dragon monsters compared to the, you know, the tiny creatures of the frog and the, and the rats. Um, Thor manages to make his way, Thor Frog basically manages to make his way back to uh, his battle cart where his, uh, where his goats and everybody are, are you know, like still keeping uh, his stuff and manages to get hold of Mjolnir. Uh, thinking that it will transform him back into being Thor. It does not. What it does is transform him into Thor as a frog. Uh, and so for the hilarious, you know, kind of like rest of the battle, we see a heroic version of Thor as a frog, uh, you know, saving the other frogs and fighting the, you know, giant dragon alligators. Um, and lots more foolishness goes on. It's a delightful story. It's hilariously funny. And it's, uh, you know, one of the high points of Simonson's run. At the end of the story, or during the story, Thor makes friends with a particularly brave young uh, frog whose name is uh, Puddlegulp. And mm -hmm. Puddlegulp is the one who explains to him all of the situation and kind of takes care of him while they're, you know, like living in the sewers and, uh, you know, chasing, being chased by rats and that sort of thing. And Puddlegulp proves himself to be particularly heroic and Thor, you know, considers him now his best friend. And so at the end of this, you know, situation when uh, Thor has finally regained his human form and goes off to get his revenge on Loki, one of the goats that is, you know, pulling Thor's cart basically kicks Mjolnir. And in doing so, like scrapes off a tiny little sliver, basically, that falls to the ground and becomes a miniaturized version of Mjolnir itself. And uh, Puddle Gulp picks it up and eventually becomes a new, becomes Throg, basically, the new, uh, uh, you know, version of Thor in much the same way Beta Ray Bill did uh, earlier in Simonson's run. He proves himself to be worthy of the power of Thor with his little tiny knockoff version of Mjolnir and basically becomes the superhero of the frogs of New York City. Mm -hmm. He has stayed as part of Marvel continuity ever since. Um, he is in the Pet Avengers. There's an entire, you know, kind of like run of stories that uh, that that feature him as a character. At one point, Puddle Gulp actually like has to take on human form as a disguise. And of course, his name as a human, as a tribute to Walt Simonson, is Simon Walterson when he actually like appears as a human being. So he's uh, that once again, that, that run of Thor, I cannot uh, recommend it strongly enough. It's one of the, you know, five greatest runs of a comic book basically ever. So. Absolutely. And it was a delight to see just this one little tribute. And I, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to see Thor frog again. I don't really care. I was just so happy to see him once. So. All right. A lot of people, uh, I think pretty much everyone saw this one in the background, the bright yellow uh, helicopter uh, that they walk past that says Thanos copter on the side mm -hmm. from a very relatively old story, you know, which featured Thanos in a helicopter. Yes, it did. There was actually the, the creator of the Thanos copter has been listed for, you know, forever in continuity uh, or, you know, in, in uh, official write-ups as Jim Salakrip. 
who was given the writer credit for that particular issue. And we'll talk about the comic in a minute. But literally just a couple of days ago on July 14th, uh, he did an interview with Comics Beat in which he confessed that he did not actually write that story at all and that it was actually ghost written by David Anthony Kraft, huh. uh, who was one of the great defenders writers. He's the guy who came to Defenders after Gerber left. And he died relatively recently uh, as well. But he was one of the fabulous, one of the funniest Marvel writers, certainly of the 70s and 80s. Um, and so it was kind of like, oh, that actually makes more sense, right? Like, the, the, oh, that's more of a David Kraft joke, basically. So the comic that we're referring to is Spidey Super Stories. Uh, it's Spidey Super Stories number 39, which came out in March of 1979. And Spidey Super Stories was a special educational a uh, superhero comic published by Spider-Man during the time that Marvel was working together with the Electric Company as a TV series. And so Spider-Man would regularly appear on Electric Company. He never said anything. He never had any direct lines because he was, in fact, a comic book character. And so he would always just have a word bubble or a thought bubble or whatever that would appear over his head that you had to read to know what Spider-Man was doing. And Spider-Man would have, you know, like these various, very silly adventures. He teamed up with uh, Morgan Freeman as Easy Reader. Uh, a couple of times in his adventures, and he, you know, was a, a regular recurring character on Electric Company. So that version of Spider-Man got his own comic, got his own spin-off comic that was called Spidey Super Stories. And Spidey Super Stories carried a little logo on it of Easy Reader, basically saying, "This is an Easy Read comic, right? Like this is a comic that is meant for five-year-olds, or you know, like whatever age that you were watching Electric Company in, right?" Um, when you're just learning to read. And so it told these very simple, very lighthearted stories, these very lighthearted versions of the Marvel Universe in which Spider-Man would you know, travel around and, and have his various adventures. Um, in this particular issue, it was number 39. Now we're more than three years into the run of Spidey Super Stories. Most of the writer, most of the stories that would be in it were not a full comic, right? There were only, you know, there'd be two or three eight-page stories in the comic or whatever in them because they didn't think kids could read that long a story. And one of the stories uh, featured not Spider-Man in a character. It was one of the other kind of like tales of the Marvel Universe, basically, uh, in which we met, well, what was supposed to be Hellcat. Right, it's definitely Hellcat using her costume. She was a major important character in the Defenders at the time. But of course, you couldn't call a character Hellcat in a comic book named, you know, aimed at six-year-olds, right? So they just changed her name to the Cat uh, as her as her superhero name. And in this story, she has, gets into a fight with Thanos, who had been introduced as a character as a villain by you know Jim Starlin six or seven years before that, and had basically been defeated. Was kind of like kicking around the universe. Was not that important a character at the time because he'd basically been very clearly beaten his last time, uh, and had not really been established as one of like the big bads of the Marvel universe. And so Kraft wrote this story in which uh, you know they are trying to get the Cosmic Cube. Which, of course, in a story for six-year-olds, basically is just you know like a wishing cube that will do whatever you know you wish it to do when you get it. And Thanos, uh, over the course of uh, fighting the cat to uh, to to get hold of this, flies around in a helicopter that has his name written on the side. It you know very clearly written says Thanos on the side of it. And after the cat defeats him single-handedly, because of course this is a you know pretty lame version of Thanos, she turns him over to the police, who arrest him and put him in jail because that's what you do with Thanos, uh, you know, as a character. <laughs> this story, of course, 
you know, it was everything in Spidey Super Stories was goofy, right? Yes, this was goofy, but it wasn't really any goofier than that. But somehow, you know, 30 plus years later, 35 years later, the internet rediscovered this. And now, of course, Thanos is a much more important and a much more serious character. And, you know, was the major bad guy for the entire run of the phase three stories uh, from the Marvel Universe, etc. So this particular story, making fun of him so badly, became very popular again and got handed around on the Internet as a meme. Deadpool uh, in its series uh, basically made that part of canon, made that part of the Marvel Universe in which there's a story in which Deadpool has, uh, you know, has well, he's taken a bunch of drugs and he's clearly having uh, hallucinations. And one of his hallucinations is that Thanos shows up in his Thanoscopter to, you know, uh, have an, uh, an interaction with him. So that was kind of the first appearance of a Thanoscopter in an actual Marvel comic that wasn't uh, you know, an educational spinoff was in June 2015, Deadpool number 45 from volume five. Uh, so since then, that has been, you know, kind of like this, obviously, you know, running joke among Marvel writers and artists as much as among kind of like the rest of the community about this hilarious version. So when we see the Thanos copter in the background of one of the scenes in the void, it's clear that like in some universe, basically one of the alternate universes out there is the Spidey Super Stories universe. Right, where that you know, where where clearly somebody had to come in and uh, eliminate that particularly ridiculous variant. So, so next, let's talk about uh, one. I think I definitely missed actually the first time. I had to go back and uh, see it on a uh, you know recap right. uh, thing. Was the Avengers Tower? Except for it's not the Avengers Tower. It's the Kang Enterprises Tower. Right. Q E N G. Kang Enterprises. Uh, that is, once again, a reference uh, to a comic and a relatively recent one. Kang Enterprises, during a stretch, in uh, it was actually first appeared in Ultron Forever, number one, uh, once again in June of 2015, same month as that De- the Deadpool issue. In that story, the Avengers have broken up, and Tony Stark owns Avengers Tower, and he sells it to a corporation to uh, what he believes to be a Chinese corporation called Kang Enterprises. Kang Enterprises, of course, will be revealed over the course of the story to be a company that is secretly owned by um, Kang in one of his various, you know, alternate versions of himself uh, as a, you know, multi-zillionaire, you know, investor, basically. And so he gets access to Avengers headquarters, basically, uh, you know, under the guise of this mysterious corporation. Um, so it's entirely possible at some point in the future in the MCU that we are going to see a version of Kang Enterprises that will, in fact, be revealed at some point to be a secret front for whatever it is that one of the Kangs is up to. Right. And just a couple more that uh, are seen in the background, um, which probably don't. If you if you take a look through and see some of the other stuff that's uh, that that shows up in the uh, you know in the background, there is clearly a uh, one of Yellow Jacket's helmets. Right is shown in one of them um, as to, you know, which version of Yellow Jacket we're talking about is, is completely unclear. At one point, we actually see a statue that is the three-headed uh, face of the Living Tribunal, who is one of the most cosmic characters in the, you know, in the Marvel cosmology and dates all the way back to uh, 1967, basically, as a character, as a Doctor Strange uh, you know, like background character, one of the the beings who's in charge of you know, like judging the cosmic events of the uh, of the Marvel universe. And we also see one of the planes from the first Captain America movie, the Treebflugels, 
And I'm including this in that because the Triebflugels themselves are a pop culture reference. When they first appeared in Captain America First Avenger, they were also a reference to a famous thing in the outside world um, because the Triebflugel is in fact a real design for a plane, the deal with the spinning, you know, the spinning wheel on the back, basically, that, they, that the agents fly around with outside of Red Skull's ship mm-hmm. is, in fact, an actual design based on an actual design that the Nazis really worked on. Mm-hmm. Turned out it didn't fly, uh, but it's kind of like a famous what if, right? Like that it was, uh, you know, like uh, allied uh, soldiers, you know, uh, got hold of like Nazi plans, basically, uh, to build this plane, a plane that like looked like this, that would have been, you know, like the greatest fighters in the sky if they actually existed. Um, and so, you know, like that's a reference now that's been gone back in the Marvel universe for years and years that actually does relate to a real world mysterious thing that never happened. So I wanted to kind of like mention that uh, one of those turns up here as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, and then speaking of pop culture things, there's a few other ones we reference. First of all, earlier in the series, we reference uh, DB Co- DB Cooper. DB uh, Cooper turns out that Loki is DB Cooper. Yes. Which is hilarious, and 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 even funnier. Uh, Loki is DB Cooper because he lost a bet. Yes, which I think is the funniest part of all of it. That uh, apparently he lost a bet with Thor and Heimdall and had to go like behave this way on Earth. So DB Cooper uh, is in fact a real story, a, a thing that really happened, and kind of a famous mystery uh, of history. Uh, November twenty fourth, nineteen seventy one. A man going by the name of Dan Cooper. D.B. Cooper is, in fact, actually a, uh, you know, a, a, an error of uh, transcription from the reporting of the time. He never actually called himself D.B. Cooper. His actual name that he gave was Dan Cooper. And he uh, got on to uh, a, a flight, uh, an airplane. In, it was uh, Northwest Orient Airlines, flight number 305 going from Portland, Oregon to Seattle. Once he was on the plane and uh, been, you know, had been handed his drink and everything, uh, he told, he had handed the stewardess a note and said that he was hijacking the plane and that he had a bomb. This is, you know, being the early 70s, hijacking planes was, uh, you know, kind of like all the rage is a crime at that point. Um, and so uh, he told the the uh, stewardess and then later the pilot, when they got into contact with him, he asked for $200,000. Uh, and four parachutes uh, to be delivered to the tarmac in the plane uh, in Seattle. He would then, at that point, when they had gotten the money in the parachutes, let the passengers off the plane, but not the crew. And then the crew were going to fly him to Mexico and let him off there, which was how he was planning to get away, was his plan. Um, At least that's the plan that he told them. Now, uh, it was pointed out to him that the Northwest Orient Airlines uh, plane that he was on was not going to make it all the way from Seattle to Mexico on a single, you know, on on one set of fuel and was going to need to stop and refuel in Reno. And he said, okay, sure, I understand that. We'll do, we, we will stop in Reno and we will refuel and then you will fly me to Mexico. And of course, the government had, you know, the police had set up a whole thing where they were going to, you know, intercept him in, Re- in Reno. Um, once they were in flight again with having received his $200,000 in very, you know, in, in, uh, with, you know, obviously once again, obvious to us, whether he knew or not, it kind of like remains a question that they had all of the serial numbers of all of the, all of the bills, uh, and had received four of the parachutes, only two of which actually worked. 
they took off again to fly to Reno while they were in the air. He put all of the remaining crew in the cabin and locked them in. Then he took the uh, parachutes. He like strung together uh, like a, uh, a one parachute using the ropes from the ones that didn't work, using the the the, the cords basically from the ones that weren't real, uh, and jumped out the aft door of the plane, uh, getting clean away as far as anybody knows. This crime went on to be famous. D.B. Cooper was never caught. Over the course of the next 40 years, the FBI investigated literally thousands of suspects. There are multiple books. There are multiple movies. Some of the money that was given to him uh, was uh, found still bound in rubber bands in a river in Oregon, not that far from where he jumped out of the plane. And no body has ever been found or anything like that. And so who exactly D.B. Cooper was has become a very kind of like famous pop culture mystery. Um, it was referenced multiple times uh, in other pieces of pop culture. Mad Men uh, did an entire uh, set of stories actually about uh, about D.B. Cooper himself. Um, and so we discover in Loki that uh, D.B. Cooper was in fact actually Loki himself uh, paying off a bet basically to uh, Thor and Heimdall and so did not care about the uh, money. And, you know, when he jumped out of the plane, was retrieved by Heimdall to uh, go back to Asgard. Um, what makes that particularly funny is that Tom Hiddleston, uh, as an actor, matches uh, the physical description of D.B. Cooper very closely. So it's kind of a, you know, nice little, uh, nice little bit, basically, uh, to suggest that that's who he might have been. And as far as pop culture goes, there's two other sort of big references. First being the Philadelphia Experiment. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, Eldridge and uh, right. a pretty big part in the. Uh, in I was going to say when when Al we see Elioth uh, actually you know uh, coming in to destroy you know an American vessel an American destroyer basically uh, and uh, you know engage in a in a battle with it that is kind of like hopelessly one sided um, as we as the camera swoops around the uh, the front of this battleship we see that it's uh, labeled clearly the USS Eldridge. Now, the Eldridge is famously part of like this great pop culture myth called the Philadelphia Experiment. And it is uh, an American ship during World War II, somewhere around the end of October 1943, uh, where this experiment uh, on board the ship, depending on the version of the story that you heard, uh, either rendered the Eldridge invisible or perhaps teleported it to someplace else, or perhaps temporarily sent it to another dimension that was basically hell and killed a lot of its crew, depending on the alternate versions of this that you have heard. The story originally comes from a UFO writer by the name of Morris Jessup, who in 1955 claims that he received a set of anonymous letters from somebody named Carlos Miguel Allende, or perhaps just Carl Allen, uh, which explained the story of how the Eldridge was in fact chosen for this top secret experiment that was supposedly intended to make battleships invisible. He wrote a book about this uh, in 1955 and 56 that sold, you know, hundreds of copies. Uh, what's called the Varos edition is in fact actually a big collectible for um, conspiracy theory nerds, basically. Um, one of the people who read that book was Charles Berlitz. Uh, who was a much more famous writer about kind of, you know, like pop culture conspiracy stuff. And uh, in 1979, wrote a uh, book called The Philadelphia Experiment, which basically took the story from Jessup's book and expanded it uh, to a full, uh, you know, a, a full book length uh, uh, bit of foolishness. It's completely factually wrong. The Eldritch is a, a well-established uh, uh, ship in 
World War II that can be easily proven to be nowhere near where uh, it is claimed to have been from uh, October 1943. All of its captains and all of its crew are well established. None of them are dead. None of them disappeared. Nobody ever went insane, et cetera, et cetera. But it has once again become a very popular pop culture reference um, as far as like a, a, a mystery, there are a couple of movies, one really bad one with Michael Pere that I remember. And once again, as long as, you know, we are kind of establishing the existence of variants that need to be pruned, uh, clearly the, this version of the Eldridge had to be one of them. It makes perfect sense from a story point of view. Mm -hmm. And this episode that we've been referring to a lot is called Journey into Mystery, which is the, uh, you know, name of the uh, first Thor series. Yes, the comic book that was eventually converted into Thor. Thor became the lead feature and then eventually took it over entirely. And lastly, in the Loki hideout, um, we see a very um, interesting uh, arcade machine. Yes. The entire fight scene, basically among the Lokis, when they when they kind of engage in an all-out brawl through in their own headquarters there, um, goes around an arcade video game, clearly that looks like it's from the early 80s. And the legend on it, the, the, the logo on it, it says Polybius. And Polybius, once again, another famous, well-known urban legend, this one particularly to nerds, um, is supposedly a video game that was released in 1981 uh, in several locations, supposedly around Portland, Oregon, which is funny because that's also where D.P. Cooper you know, like, takes place, basically. Um, and when you played this game, some people who played this video game would get sick. Uh, they would get nauseous, et cetera, for us. But they would also become addicted to playing it, right? That like it, it, it was difficult to get players to come away from actually playing it, that it had some sort of an effect on your mind. Um, it led to insomnia, amnesia, night terrors, hallucinations, supposedly, um, was regularly required men in black to come into like the arcades basically of the of the early 80s um to repair it and then eventually to remove it and so different versions of this story either say that this game polybius was either uh you know like released intentionally as a secret government project to see if uh you know video games could be used for mind control basically or accidentally turned out to be like a mind controlling type game in which the men in black came to the company and basically you know swiped the game and took it away from them the company that supposedly released it its name is sinus lotion uh, and Sinus Lotion is basically dog German. It's badly it's ungrammatical German, basically, for sense deleting, basically. And so, you know, where this game eventually wound up is uncertain in the course of these stories. Polybius himself is a famous Greek writer and historian. And one of the most famous things that he ever said was, you should never trust any story that cannot be verified by eyewitnesses. So giving the game that name as part of an urban legend is a, one of the things that kind of like suggests that whoever wrote it knew what they were doing, right? Like that this was clearly an, an on-purpose scam because you can't find anybody who is in fact an eyewitness of seeing this game. Everybody heard it from a friend. This story, you know, kind of like was making the rounds in the late 90s to the early 2000s. GamePro magazine wrote an article about it in 2003. And that kind of like brought it to the attention of a lot of the, you know, the video gaming world, more versions of the story were kind of like generated after that. 
one of the real world references that people think may have contributed to the telling of the story is the game Cube Quest, which did in fact come out in the early 80s, um, was a laser disc shooting game, one of the very first ones that used a laser disc system. Um, and because the laser disc system inside it was so fragile and basically like a brand new piece of technology that like arcade owners and managers weren't very good at using required rep to be repaired on a regular basis, right? Like maintenance people had to come in and fix the thing all the time. And then of course, if it was unfixable, they would just pull it out and replace it with something that was less bother. Right, so the idea of a really popular game uh, that needed to be maintained and was like you know uh, removed under mysterious circumstances actually may be a reference back to this actual existing thing, which was being taken out for the much less suspicious reason of the damn thing kept breaking all the time. <laughs> it became such a popular urban legend that two actual other games called Polybius were released by different companies after the fact, one in 2007 and one in 2014. Nobody has ever found anybody from the original company. Nobody can actually like claim that anybody has a, you know, has gotten a hold of one of these arcades, you know, one of the one of the games themselves physically, right? But everybody knows somebody who saw one. Everybody knows somebody who was affected by one, right? Like it's that kind of like a, you know, a, an urban legend that survives out there. So of course, clearly it had to be removed from history by uh by the TVA. So once again, fits perfectly in the theme of the series. Yep, that makes perfect sense um it's one of my favorite urban legends too it's just such a fun i love arcades so that's probably part of it right yeah it's it's uh, so of a particular time and place right like it's when you have to in explaining the story of this you really kind of have to explain the existence of video game arcades in the first place to kids who have no idea what that would be like yeah and there there is even when i walk into arcades today and i see a new weird game there's a certain amount of like wonder to it i wish we still had arcade culture right um <laughs> But that's like a, you know, personal uh, love. Um, all right. Well, that pretty much wraps up um, Loki, both the history and our thoughts on it. If you'd like to talk to us some more about what you uh, thought about it, uh, please join our Discord. Um, check out our Patreon. We'd love to hear from uh, you and what you what you thought of the show. Absolutely. With that said, I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Good night. Thanks for coming. <laughs>